Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. I'm Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ, and today I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Richard Shields, who is Professor and Director of the Department of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Science at the Carver College of Medicine at the University of Iowa. Welcome, Rich. Thank you, Alan. Uh, We're going to talk about an article that he and his colleagues are publishing in PTJ. It's entitled Precision Physical Therapy, Exercise, the Epigenome, and the Heritability of Environmentally Modified Traits. I'll give a little summary of your perspective, Rich, and then we can talk about it. Uh, The field of epigenetics, which examines how pervasive environmental factors regulate the expression of genes, is one of the exciting new frontiers of physical therapy. The authors argue that the epigenome may be one of the most powerful systems through which exercise exerts its beneficial effects on our health as well as our longevity. And in their perspective, the authors summarize the emerging body of knowledge that supports epigenetic adaptations to exercise in humans, including the intriguing possibility that these environmentally modified traits could be passed down to offspring. The perspective makes the case that physical therapists are ideally suited to contribute to the discovery of the appropriate dose, mode, intensity, and duration of exercise required to achieve a lower epigenetic age, experience fewer metabolic diseases, and also enjoy greater longevity. And the authors propose that the genesis of precision physical therapy will capitalize on epigenetic discoveries to optimize exercise-based interventions, and that the profession of physical therapy must be alert to new epigenetic knowledge that can enhance the specificity as well as the efficacy of our movement-based treatments. So, Rich, I really enjoyed and learned a lot in reading your perspective. This is not an area I know much about. And so you talk about epigenetics as the study of how regular exposures to environmental factors, such as exercise, but also others, such as nutrition, emotional stress, and so forth, will promote the expression or the repression of certain genes. How important is exercise relative to other environmental exposures that you talk about? So that's really a great first question because it starts to put in perspective the holistic approach of these environmental factors on gene regulation. But because this is a new frontier, we don't know precisely the weight that we can give to these various uh, doses of stress that we get exposed through through life. However, in some recent work that was carried out in Sweden, Lind and, and colleagues showed a nice association between epigenetic aging versus lifetime exercise. And that was after they adjusted for several other environmental factors. So, At the very least, we know that things like exercise likely have a very powerful influence on tagging these genes, partly because our genetic pool
pool is so well conserved for physical activity. So if we think about it, our gene pool was designed to see regular activity. And it's only been in the last 100 years that that has taken a, a tremendous hit. And so we're starting to appreciate the power of that regular intervention called activity on how it promotes healthy genes and perhaps represses genes that likely are not as healthy for us. So while the, the definitive answers aren't out there yet, this is the new frontier. And maybe where we were years ago when we just started to learn about exercise in general, but now we can actually look at where they're getting promoted. The genes are getting promoted and actually tagged with a type of a memory. It's fascinating uh, to listen to you talk about that. And when I think about it, you know, you argue in the perspective that the day is coming when we may understand the cellular adaptations upon which every functional gain is predicated. Why will intricate cellular adaptations be important for us to understand in the exercise prescriptions that we offer to people? Well, you know, first and foremost, if we aren't the experts in what we're prescribing, who will be? And so I think it's a, a fundamental principle that many of us know we will never be able to perform evidence-based practice based on the fact that there was a randomized controlled clinical trial driving every piece of information that we use. Things, simple principles that there were never trials over that we've adopted and used are things like the overload principle with the idea of that's the method to increase muscle hypertrophy. And that was because we saw that at a cellular level. And years and years have implemented those types of principles because we were delving into the new scientific breakthroughs. Now that we're in a position for the first time to not only from a monetary standpoint, but from a technological standpoint, study the tags that are placed on genes, we can very quickly learn to understand what might be the best intervention even to deploy in a randomized control clinical trial. So the idea that, that almost every clinical trial we do, we have to ground the intervention. If we're not keeping abreast with the newest scientific knowledge to assist us in grounding or justifying the intervention being studied, then more likely, if that outcome is not positive, one could question the veracity of the actual intervention. So, it, you know, it's really fundamental for us to be in, involved with the discovery of new knowledge, or at least consumers of that new knowledge. And we can list principle after principle, whether it's Wolf's Law on bone or hypertrophy of skeletal muscle or triggers for oxidative training that really relied not on clinical trials, but on basic cellular work that got passed on to clinicians and practitioners. As a profession, you know, not only are we responsible for the discovery of new knowledge and the, and the treatment, but we really need to be on the cutting edge because we are often the people who have to take this knowledge and implement it. And so 
that's why one reason I think it will be important for PTs. The other is we're in an era where we're transparent about scientific discoveries. Our clients are reading about new cellular scientific discoveries. And so as a physical therapist, if we're truly going to explain and clarify and correct misinterpreted new scientific information, we have to be at the cutting edge of, of consuming it ourselves. So I think it will have a, a, an important impact on a profession like ours. Yeah, you make a very strong and compelling case. You note in your perspective that currently, in the U.S. at least, all accredited PT education programs now include genetics as a component of entry-level curricula. Do you believe the, the requirement currently is adequate? And if not, what more should be included in your view? I think it's less about quantity, but more about quality. And I state that because, you know, although the requirement for accreditation is to have genetics, if there's a disconnect between those teaching genetics and those who understand implementation of clinical science, then, you know, it's less about how many credit hours if the quality of what's being delivered isn't uh, really at the level of the physical therapist and, and understanding how to utilize it. So it concerns me because I would say that I don't believe there's adequate quality of this level of information being delivered to our accredited institutions. Although they can check the box that they have genetics, I don't yeah. think the, the quality is necessarily there. And that's grounded by a lack of faculty and the proliferation of physical therapy schools across the country. It reminds me of the situation when I was a PT student and studying neurophysiology. It had not translated into the curricula of physical therapy, and there was a real disconnect. It sounds very familiar mm -hmm. to what you're talking about today with epigenetics. Yes. I want to go on to another question uh, that really struck me in reading your perspective. The existing research that you very nicely review for readers on epigenetics and, and exercise demonstrates that the relationship that is being shown is critically important for us to understand because the majority of our movement interventions are designed to be implemented for a long duration. And you argue that's precisely the type of environmental stimulus that could cause stable epigenetic adaptations, which makes a lot of sense to me. But the question I have, Rich, is how long is law to achieve this kind of epigenetic change? Yeah, again, you know, these are questions that are spot on. You know, it's it's hard for us to say exactly what is the length of time across all these various doses of stress that can be applied. But we do know that when it comes to exercise, there seems to be a timeline where the, the gene gets promoted, but then this memory gets enhanced over months, years, decades. And, you know, we have some evidence, preliminary data at this point, that supports that withdrawing exercise, even three to five years, still holds a tagging 
long-term relative to never doing anything at all. Now, remember, in physical therapy, we're always grounding our interventions on where they started, but we rarely see where they would have been if they never did anything at all. And that's a real compelling piece. When we look at individuals, let's say, with spinal cord injury who don't have any activity, and then we begin a five-year dose, then we withdraw that, we start to appreciate how long-term this tagging is in place relative to never activating the limb at all. And so how that could change our practice and impact our interventions comes down to, you know, prior to an elective surgery, we will have the capacity to measure these tags very quickly. And maybe the optimal time for an elective surgery is when we've tagged the appropriate genes that when we then have to stop some of the activity, the memory is in place, suggesting that it's an easier transition to get going again. Now, again, I don't want to give the impression that we know these timelines, and that's why this is the new frontier. But I think it's fertile ground for future research to really delineate what is the right time, what is the right duration. We know a lifetime of certain types of stressors clearly have a a compelling impact. And so I I think the jury is, is still out but I could foresee that this is really fertile ground to to tease out, you know, how much is necessary prior to or what would be the best dose to protect someone going into a set of surgeries or a set of conditions that they know they're going to be, have reduced activity for. I could see where that could radically transform prehabilitation and take it to a whole new level. It's really quite interesting. You know, you talk about long-term change, which kind of gets into an area I know something about, and I know how notoriously difficult it is to affect long-term change in behavior such as exercise. Do you think that educational entry-level curricula in physical therapy includes enough of what we currently know about the science of behavior change? And the answer to that is no, and I don't think we have enough in it, and what we have in it, I think, appears to be insufficient in terms of quality. You know, when you can change a behavior, you've really had an impact, but I really believe that the field of epigenetics is fostering a better understanding of some of these behavioral modification changes. And let me give you an example. We always think in terms of the social determinants of health, and they're always discussed in isolation from genetics, as if they're mutually exclusive. The big problem, I think, with behavior modification from an educational standpoint is you cannot impact a social determinant of health without impacting genetics. That's what epigenetics is telling us. So your social economical status is all part and parcel to tagging the genetics that makes you who you are. This connection between behavioral science and epigenetics is not something anyone talks about. No. And for the first time, these two fields should be tied together. And that's when, when that can be articulated 
patients and and including clients who come from a less than optimal social environment, then the importance of maybe the activity side of it, even if diet and some of these other ones are compromised, rises to a level of importance. But I think taking together, these, these things aren't mutually exclusive anymore now that we know that these environmental factors are manipulating and promoting or repressing various gene pools. You know, your the latter part of your perspective focuses on what I find is a very uh, interesting and provocative question of whether or not epigenetic adaptations that are induced by exercise or, fortunately, the lack thereof, could echo across generations in humans. And you talk about that in your piece. Is this a hypothesis, or are there actual data in humans to support this intriguing uh, idea? This is really the exciting piece, because we have the potential to influence generations, purely based on what's complied with today in terms of uh, physical activity, let's say. What we know is that within the, the generations of cells, there clearly is this heritability. And what that means is if I tag a muscle cell and we now know we can induce hyperplasia, which is making more cells, mitosis, if you will, of a cell, then those daughter cells carry that epigenetic change. We also know in animal models that some of these changes are seen for three generations. To my knowledge, that is still a hypothesis in humans, in that the true generational changes where the exercise has actually induced the change in the gametes to where then a fertilized egg would carry that promoted epigenetic code. Now, there are those who, and certainly the basic science literature would support that that's the case, but that, to my knowledge, has only been shown in animal models. But I think we're on the cusp of discovering that through multiple ways that we can now analyze epigenetic changes. And it reminds me of the large-scale national study that's being launched by the NIH. I forget the title of it, All the, the all or of, something like that. The All of all Us. All of Us, yes. Because yes. that could be very useful to look at these kinds of questions, could it not, in humans? Definitely. And by, by getting the right biomarkers and samples to follow through generations would be really the way to do this. And this also rings clear with the idea that epigenetics and environmental factors are actually, we've known for a long time, environmental factors influence maternal health and, yep. and uh, contribute to overall outcomes in terms of risk. So the idea that there's a genetic link makes perfect sense. But again, that specific transfer of exercise to influencing the gametes has not been established intergenerational in humans. It does raise the very interesting connection between public health and epigenetics, which is not something I'd ever thought about. They really are tied together because mm -hmm. genetics and lifestyle and behavioral observational studies 
fit nicely with the repetitive exposure to stresses that people endure each and every day of their life. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk about your perspective with me. I want to encourage listeners to take a careful look at the perspective. I believe it's in the November issue of PTJ. And uh, I look forward to seeing more of this work going forward, Rich. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alan. I enjoyed speaking with you about it.